Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Thank you so much for uh, hosting me this morning. I really do feel welcomed. I really do feel encouraged. I hope to be able to bring some encouragement to each of you. I have a few connections with uh, your congregation. Uh, like As Willie said, I got to watch him go through the grueling process of ordination and cheer him all the way through it. And he'll get to do the same for me, hopefully, <laughs> in just a couple of months. Um, we watch from afar. So I hear about you guys at Presbytery. Um, our senior pastor has a really close connection to your church. We hear about you guys. We pray for you guys. Um, it really is a gift to get to stand here before you and to actually see this place. And I'm going to kind of wrap up finishing uh, as I finish this passage, speaking specifically to you and how, how this passage is going to apply to you. Can I pray for us before we go into the sermon? Gracious Heavenly Father, come before you this morning needing your help. Father, by your Spirit, through your Word, would you open our ears, give us eyes to see the beauty and wonder and grace so that we would be in awe of your beautiful Son, Jesus. Father, help us now as we look to your Word. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I really enjoy running. Not everyone's cup of tea. I run out, I get, I get a lot of miles in. I love to train for races. Um, it's just, a, it's an opportunity for me to kind of stay fit, to get out and clear my head. And sometimes when I can't go out, you know, away from home, I'll, I have this little loop in my neighborhood. It's about a one mile loop and I'll go out and I'll do laps. Last week I was running in my neighborhood, running down the road and this car slows down beside me. And I see the window go down, and I look inside, and there's this sweet little old lady. She's slowing down to talk to me. She rolls down the window, and she goes, son, is somebody making you do that? And I said, no, ma'am, I actually enjoy this. <laughs> I am willing to suffer in order to train for a marathon, to train to stay fit, to be able to get out and have a little bit of clear headspace. I am not willing to go and suffer to lift weights in a gym. Now, if you enjoy lifting weights in a gym, you're probably looking at me right now saying, you're crazy. And then there's some of you out there who say you are both crazy. But maybe you are willing to sacrifice a little bit of sleep at night by staying up to read a book or watch TV just so you can get a little bit of alone time. On a more serious note, some of you maybe have suffered through chemo in order to just to get a few more years with your family and your friends. Some of us wake up each day and venture out at a soul-sucking hour and go into a soul-sucking job because we have family who depend on us. Some of us 
suffer the abuse that comes with advocating for biblical justice. Some of us are willing to suffer to take the gospel forward. But we are willing to suffer for certain things. In this morning's passage, we don't just see what Paul is willing to suffer for, but we also see the reason why he is suffering, why his suffering is worth it. In Ephesians 3, Paul is giving us a picture of what has been revealed in Christ. It is so good, so magnificent, so overwhelming that he can't help but notice how it transforms lives, how it reframes our hopes, and how it gives us an eternal perspective. That if we fully grasp this mystery, he says, that has been revealed to us, then we realize that it is worth the suffering, and even dying for. And so for us this morning, we are faced with a question. How do you live into the difficult, hard moments of life? When everything doesn't go according to your plan, the way that you thought things were gonna work out, when things begin to spiral out of control, when the sin and brokenness of the world seems so overpowering, what do you look to? What do you lean into? How do you have the hope to press forward? Paul's gonna show us three things this morning. He's gonna show us what this mystery is that has been revealed. He's gonna tell us how we can be stewards of it. And then finally, how we are going to embody that mystery. So before we jump in, we have to do a little bit of context work to really understand where Paul is coming from. As we get into the passage, we see ourselves in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul writes this letter to the church of Ephesus to remind them of God's cosmic redeeming work through his son, Jesus. More importantly, this gracious work, which has been accomplished through Christ, has implications that influence every aspect of our lives. And most importantly, how it relates to the church. Now, the church in Ephesus was made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, So we all know Jewish, it's both a national and God's chosen specific people. We know that from the Old Testament. A Gentile is anything outside of that Jewish realm. So anyone considered outside. And that's critical for us to understand this morning, especially in this first point. As this text starts off, it's classic Paul. I've come to love Paul for this. Um, Paul is a lot like my wife. She'll start into a, like a sentence and she'll start talking about something. And I begin to notice a few sentences later, we're not talking about the same thing that she started with. And that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. She says, you've got a lot of information up here and you're trying to get it out. And that's what Paul's doing for us this morning. He starts off with a thought and he gets half a sentence in and he doesn't come back to it until verse 14, which you're not gonna get to until even next week. So verses 2 through 13 are this rabbit trail, this digression that he goes on. But he opens it up talking about suffering. Do not be discouraged by the suffering that you see. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then that's as far as he gets. He's not actually going to get back to this until verse 14. So you'll get to there next week. But this is kicked off by the fact that Paul is suffering as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. 
Now, what does that mean? We know from places like Acts 21 that Paul is being held as a prisoner in Rome. So he's writing this letter from prison, and we see that he's told that he was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile, one from outside, into the temple. Big no-no. Paul ends up getting in trouble, and he's actually imprisoned for this, and he finds himself suffering. He was supposed to take the gospel message out, and now he finds himself in prison. But he says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged by my circumstances. Now for Paul, this digression, we quickly pick up on a word that's repeated over and over. He talks about this mystery. What is this mystery? He says it in verses two, four, six, and nine. What's Paul talking about this mystery for? Now, when you and I hear mystery, we probably think of something like a murder mystery, a crime mystery. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was actually watching the movie uh, Knives Out, Glass Onion. Uh, it's, a, it's a murder mystery. And throughout the whole movie, you're trying to figure out who, who actually did it. What, what's going on here? And it's kind of fun to guess those things. And maybe if you're a, a child, like you, or when you were a child, you read uh, The Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. I think kids still do uh, do that. That's what we think of when we think of a mystery. And the thing about a mystery is that you generally do not know how the story's gonna play out, but the author or the writer does. Something has to be revealed to us in order to understand what actually happened. And this idea is somewhat close to what Paul means when he uses the word mystery. And here's what's similar. God is the author of all of human history. God has known this end from the very beginning. It says in verse 11, what God revealed was always his eternal purpose. And like any good mystery writer, God has been dropping hints all throughout the Old Testament. Hints about where this, his ultimate plan is going. And in verse five, Paul says, nobody could have seen what was coming. God hasn't, God hasn't given you the decisive plot twist that you need to solve solve it until it's fully revealed in his son, Jesus. And Paul isn't saying here that, that he was so smart, that he was the one that was gonna be able to figure this out. He's just saying that it was not revealed until this time, until the fullness of God came in his son, Jesus. But here's the mystery, verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Christ Jesus through the gospel. And like any good mystery writer, God has been dropping the hints. When you go back through the Old Testament, there's this clear theme that God's intention was always to bless the nations, not just the Jews, but those outside. When he sees that when Abraham was called to be the father of the Jews, he said that I'm calling you and I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. It was always there. But in the Old Testament, the only way to know the one true God was to become a Jew. They had to shed their prior identity and become a Jew in order to truly know God. That was the way. But verse six tells us that there's now a new and better way. Paul is willing to give up everything for this new and this better way. Now, we don't feel the fullness of this Jew-Gentile divide this morning. So just to kind of peek into that for a second, 
there's a long history, millennia even, of these two ethnic groups hating each other. You can look all through scripture and trace this. Uh, it would be the Jews first, conquer, going out, conquering all those, conquering the Gentiles. God had given this. They were to wipe out to get in the land of Canaan. There are uh, multiple Jewish holidays that all say, they tried to kill us, it should have worked, it didn't, God rescued us, let's celebrate. The time Paul is writing this, there is intense persecution. Thousands of Jews being crucified in the cities. But it also goes the other way. For hundreds of years, the Jews looked smugly down their noses and said, you know what? We know the one true God and you don't. We're gonna be spending eternity with him and you won't. There is this intense hate between these two groups. And it's into this that Paul writes this beautiful mystery. Now this clear distinction, which had separated individuals and nations for millennia is now wiped out. Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, if you go back one chapter, he said, for he himself, that's Christ Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and who has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says this beautiful mystery that has been revealed is in the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And it has the power to redeem and transform the most broken parts of this world, especially this Jew-Gentile divide. So what are we supposed to do with this revelation? Paul says that he's a steward. Here we have Paul in jail, but he tells us right up front that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, the ones who are the outside. There's a great opposition just for him to even say this. But Paul's not concerned about that because he's living not for himself, but for what Christ has done. Paul gives his life away. He's willing to lay down his life for what the Jews would call the least of these, the Gentiles. And you see, Paul is able to live into this hard situation because he finds himself in his current circumstances of suffering. They're bearable. Why? Because of what has been done for him. And he's transformed by this precious grace that he can't help but lay down his life for others. He calls himself a steward for the grace of God. Now, what is a steward? That means that you're given something. You're given a property or you're given an asset and you're to care for it. And then you're to give it away. You, you, go, you, you possess it, but you don't possess it for yourself. Paul is a steward. He says in verse two, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So what do you have to do to be a steward? You have to receive something. You have to receive grace or receive the gospel. You can't be a steward if you haven't first received it in the first place. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. It's the recurring theme of this passage. Everything that Paul has become, everything that Paul has achieved was God's work. It was God's call. It was God's rescue. It was God's enabling. It was all grace. 
Who are we talking about when we talk about Paul? Do you remember? The one who persecuted the Christians? The one who set out to murder them? Now look at Paul. Laying down his life for even the least of these. The one who's chased down and murdered Christians is now the one who is taking the message to the, to the nations. And Paul is deeply conscious of his own unworthiness. I love this. We know this because he tells us in verse eight, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul said, I've been given this grace by God and there is not a more unlikely character in the entire biblical narrative than me. And I was the one who was given this. There is no one more unworthy and he's given this grace. This is good news for us this morning. But here's what Paul is leaning into right here. That grace wasn't given to you just to enhance your life. It wasn't given to you just so you can sleep well at night or be comfortable or just so that you can go to heaven someday. That grace was given to you to give away. If you know Jesus, you are a steward. Think about it like this. I heard this illustration and I, I had to use it. Think about a FedEx driver or a UPS driver. He gets in his truck in the morning. He backs up his truck to the warehouse. The employees fill his truck full of, get, full, full of packages and he drives home and he opens them all up and he keeps what he likes. No, it's not how it works. He's given these packages. It's, it's his job to care for them it's his job to deliver them to where they're supposed to go. He understands that he is a steward of these packages. He's to take what's been given and then deliver to its intended destination. Paul says this grace, this mercy, this gospel that is given to you so that you can take it out and give to someone else. How stunned are you by God's grace? Are you so blown away as by his mercy that you can't help but share it with another. What does this look like? like? What does this look like for us? And I get that maybe some of you came in this door this morning and it was all you could do just to get in here and sit down, and that's okay. But many of us, we have been given so much. We have been so blessed, but we're also so busy, right? We all have busy schedules. But look at the places that God has already placed you. What does it look like to invite someone that you don't know to your dinner table? What does it look like to invite just a coworker, a classmate? What does it look like to talk to someone at your kid's soccer practice? At wherever it is that you might be that you might not otherwise even glance their way, we all have a story, we're all hurting, we're all lonely, and we're all looking for that grace to be extended to us. Simple, easy places where God has already placed us. How can we be the recipient of such lavish kindness that we would just want to keep it for ourselves? Paul says we're stewards. We take this message out. In the midst of difficulty, suffering, and hardship, Paul says, I'm not living for myself. I'm looking to others. Finally, Paul talks about embodying the mystery. And to me, this is the most beautiful part of this entire passage. We've been talking a lot about this mystery. And you know what's not a mystery? 
that the world all around us is broken and coming unraveled. We figure out from the very first pages of the biblical story that after sin entered the story, everything comes unraveling and sin starts to ravage the world. There's war, there's pandemics, there's injustice, there's crime. And those things are not just out there. We know pain and suffering in here as well. Sitting in this room, there are relationships that are strained within families. There's broken, hurting marriages. There's dysfunctional homes. There's bitter loneliness. We battle addictions, disease, cancer, the loss of loved ones, prodigal children, debilitating anxiety and depression. We all know that suffering. We all feel the ache and curse of this world. You know what the mystery is, though? It's that everything that is unraveling, God is putting back together. That's what Paul is pointing to. That's the mystery. That Christ Jesus came into the world to restore everything that was broken and touched by the curse, as far as the curse is found. To restore our relationship with God and with one another, and to ultimately heal everything that is broken. He said it in verse six, the mystery is that the Gentiles are the fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's saying here is this beautiful picture of something that is incredibly unbroken and I'm putting it on display so that all the world can see what I'm doing. People who hated each other once now call to love one another. And this healing power of God at work in the world through the Holy Spirit is going to be demonstrated through his church. The church is the agency for the healing power of God. It's central to God's plan. The church is God's demonstration of his mercy to the watching world. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. No alternative method. Paul says it's the church Maybe some of you hear and say, wait a minute. Have you seen some of these people? Let me look down your row. I've seen, I'm one of them. The beautiful plan that God has ordained includes a whole bunch of sinners getting together and bringing glory to him and doing life together. And sometimes it gets messy. But that does not change the purpose or the mission of the church a single ounce. I was talking to somebody a couple months ago and I was asking them, you know, what, what's your plans for this summer? And she was telling me, she said, well, we're, we're going to go to uh, my husband's family reunion this summer. We, we all get together. We haven't done it in a while. And I heard that and I just thought, oh, should I say sorry? Because I know like, especially if it's if the in-laws, that's not particularly fun, right? And she kind of laughed. She chuckled and she said, you know what? She said, yeah, she said, there's some crazy uncles. There's plenty of dysfunction, but I didn't have a family growing up. And so I like to go just because it gives me some picture of how things are supposed to be. That's the church. It's not a perfect picture. 
Nobody knew how screwed up the church was more than Paul. If you don't think that's true, go read Corinthians. Yet Paul said the church is the plan that God will use. So you embody this mystery. How do you do that? You become the church. And when God's plan is embodied, Paul writes, the unsearchable riches of Christ are made known so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I'd love to get to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't have time this morning, but you should definitely look into that. When the body of believers embrace God's plan for redemption, this is how the mercy and grace of the glory of God are made known. When we as believers are united together in Christ, the most unlikely individuals, cultures, ethnicities, classes join together and lay down their lives for one another and for those outside of these walls. That's when God's glory is made known. And we so often fall into this trap of that if we can just gain enough power, if we can just tri triumph over those people, then God's glory will be made known. If we come in and we, we are well put together, where our kids are well adjusted and well behaved, we, we look like we've got it all together, then God's glory will be made known. If we can choose leaders who are decisive and dynamic and connected, then God's glory will be made known. That's not the biblical story. The kingdom is upside down. It doesn't come through strength, but it comes through weakness. It doesn't come by being proud and victorious. It comes by humility and serving. When the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, entered into the story in the form of a man, he instantly humbled himself to become like us. And he didn't come with a sword to conquer his enemies, but rather he took up a basin and a towel. And then he entered into torture and suffering so that, that all of us, you and I deserved, he stood in our place and then he would lay down his life so that you and I would be made right with God. He suffered these things for many so that the watching world for all of history would see that the mystery has been revealed in him. It was through the suffering and dying the laying down of his life, that the world would see God's grace and mercy. The one who came for us to know, knows our suffering and our pain. And Paul says, so do not lose heart. When you see me sitting in a Roman prison, do not lose heart. God still sits on his throne. His plan is still in full effect. Don't lose heart. So let me close with this. I wanna to speak to Christ Church in town. I wanna to encourage you this morning. There is a watching world who sees and rejoices and celebrates in what you are doing. This is a special place. This is a unique place. When we go to Presbytery, and when I look at the church that I'm in, it doesn't look like this church. People tell stories of your church and your mission, of where God planted you right where you are. And it's beautiful. 
It is beautiful. I love that you guys say this. I heard your elder say it when you were up here. I saw it on your websites, but you call it an uncommon family. That could not be more true. Paul is embracing that in this passage. I love that you all have a heart for this city, for these surrounding neighborhoods, for the broken places in our city. You so deeply care for the hurting and broken. You embody God's beautiful picture of redemption and because of it, his love and his mercy and his grace are on full display for the watching world. And it's not easy right now, is it? Don't lose heart is what Paul says. That in this messiness, when you enter into these places, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to a watching world. His grace, his mercy, and his love are on full display right here. And it's beautiful. So Christ Church in town, don't lose heart. Let me pray for you. Gracious Father, you are so good. I pray that you would take the truths of this passage and that you would press them deeply into our hearts. Father, we know pain and we know suffering. It's all around us. But Father, would we see in those places your mercy, your grace. Would you use these places of hurt, of pain, of suffering, of weakness, would you use them for your glory? Father, use them for our hurting hearts. Use them for the watching world around you. We pray these things for your name and your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.